So certainly our uh, models show that if you have uh, this shift towards cleaner fuels, then the government, which relies on, I think, almost 25% of its revenue currently from fossil fuels, the uh, coffers of the government will, will take a hit. Hello, and welcome to the season two of Understanding the Future. I'm your host, Punit Gandhi, and Climate Center for Cities is excited to bring to you a podcast about the future of work in the field of climate change, urban development, sustainability, and innovation. We will talk to experts working on ground as well as in the top management of government and non-governmental organizations to better understand how the field looks like in future. This will help us in preparing to enable climate actions as well as gauge the type of skill sets and jobs that would be required in future to solve complex challenges. If you are listening to it for the first time, do tune into Season 1. Hello and welcome to the Season 2 of Understanding the Future. I am your host, Punit Gandhi, and today we have with us Ms. Ulka Kelkar. She is Director for Climate Program at the World Resources Institute India, and she will help us understand about the low-carbon pathways for India. Welcome to the show, Ulka. Thank you very much, Punit. Very nice to be here on your podcast. My pleasure. With this uh, episode, I would like to straight away jump into that now there is a lot of conversation going around across the world on carbon neutrality while india uh, as of date does not have any concrete plans on those lines but we are taking up uh, low carbon pathways uh, and to give context to that what are some of the major carbon intensive things that we need to control as a country as well as what are some of the uh, pathways that we can take which are low carbon? Right. Thanks, Puneet. Uh, I think the question that you've asked is a very, uh, you know, framed very correctly because you said that India is already doing a lot of low carbon things. So in some sense, when we say low carbon, lower than what? Lower than what would have been this uh, trajectory had we not made any efforts at all? But we are seeing that India is doing a lot of investment in renewable energy. We, every day in the news, there's something about how solar power is booming. Every day we are hearing about how electric mobility is coming up. So, so certainly we are already making efforts to adapt, to, to move to a lower carbon pathway than we would have had these policies not existed at all. However, is it enough? And can we do better? And if we do more, will it come at a cost? Or will it, in fact, bring additional benefits in other walks of life as well? That is really the philosophy behind exploring low-carbon pathways for India. Uh, the second aspect of this is that, you know, we are not something that is has to happen overnight. These low-carbon pathways unfold over the period of several decades. So we have time. Uh, it is a transition that needs to start. The sooner it starts, you know, the cheaper it will be for us and the sooner the benefits will start coming for us. But certainly it is something that we can take our time to adjust to new technologies, to, to bring in new policies. And why are we doing all this? We are doing all this because climate change is emerging as a really big challenge for the world. Um, this year in particular has been has seen some very unprecedented extreme weather events. In India, we have had always floods, droughts, cyclones, 
but the rest of the world is also woken up very harshly in this year uh, with extreme floods in Europe, extreme heat waves in North America and wildfires. So more and more, there is, there is this feeling that we need to uh, advance more rapidly towards a zero carbon world. And by zero carbon, we mean that even if we emit greenhouse gas emissions to run our cities, to uh, drive vehicles, to manufacture goods, we should find ways to remove as much as we can out of the atmosphere, could be by planting trees or other technologies. And as much as possible, we reduce the amount of fossil fuels and look for other sources of energy, cleaner sources of energy. So the idea of a low carbon pathway is not that we stop growing, but that we grow with cleaner fuels or cleaner energy sources. Um, so the question then is, what should India do? Uh, India is a booming economy. It's a growing population. Cities are dynamic places where people are you know, hoping to work and live and thrive. Um, what do we need to do in this kind of situation? I would say three things. One, our electricity needs to become cleaner. We are already on the pathway to that but we are still using a lot of other fuel sources for energy. We need to electrify more and more of these sources in our buildings, appliances, industry, as well as transport. Uh, the second thing we need to do is that as these cities grow, as they develop, we could have plans uh, in order for these cities to be more compact, more efficient, and to provide the services that the urban population needs in a way that uses less rather than more fossil fuels and generates greenhouse gases. The third big piece of this is industry, the private sector. Industry uses a lot of coal, oil, gas, diesel, and more and more, they need to start thinking about switching to this new magic fuel that everybody is talking about, which is hydrogen. And yeah. hydrogen that is itself produced cleanly. So I would say these are three of the big pieces, a cleaner power sector, uh, more efficient cities, including uh, urban transport, and third, mitigation uh, in, the, in the industrial sector. But clearly it's easy for me to say these things. Each of these involves many very complex pieces of technology, policy, behavioral change. So let's talk about it more during this podcast. No, that, that sounds great. And uh, yeah, I, I do agree. Let's let's break down each of these segments and better understand all these things and all the components of these segments as well. Uh, so let's, let's come to the electricity part. We are talking about green electricity and predominantly India, again, was one of the countries which uh, did a lot of initial installation of wind. Now it is doing of right. solar. So we are increasing good amount of electricity from the renewable energy. How do you see, uh, and again, while we do that, there is a big push. Uh, so we have somewhere close to 350 gigawatt of electric uh, city capacity, generation capacity, of which somewhere around 100 gigawatt is renewable energy. And I think which is quite good in terms uh, when we talk about that, what is the capacity installation? But this comes with a very big fluctuation part. How, how are we going to stabilize this much amount of integration of electricity, which is predominantly from renewable energy? Right. No, that's absolutely the crucial, uh, you know, the crux at the heart of the matter. Um, right now, India has a commitment that 40% of its installed capacity will come from non-fossil fuel sources of energy. And our 
target date for that was around 2030. And we're very much on track. I think the COVID pandemic was a bit of a setback. You would have all heard about news about how financing for renewable energy projects was hit just as every other private sector enterprise was hit. Um, but we're very much on track for that 40% figure. But the kinds of low carbon pathways that various models show say that we need to get to around 80% of, uh, of our electricity installed capacity coming from non-fossil fuel sources by 2030, 2040, 2050, you know, whatever, as soon as we can do it. But, but that's a massive shift. Uh, as you said, there are two, there are there is this whole issue of energy storage because renewable energy is um, produced only when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. There is this question of, of storage. And storage right now is, is reasonably expensive, although the price of it, you know, the prices of batteries and all of that is falling. But people are also looking at very innovative ways of storage. For example, you could pump water as in a hydropower plant, when the renewable energy is being generated, use that as storage. And when you need electricity, you release the water and you kind of, uh, you know, uh, reverse generate uh, the kind of electricity that you need. So pumped hydro is one form of storage. People are also looking at very innovative new battery technologies. And one of the reasons over here is because battery technology requires some very precious minerals that are not always available within our territory. So it makes us sensitive to imports, to price fluctuations. And so there's always this um, innovation that is going on in new kinds of battery chemistries. Um, and so it's, it's the same with mobile applications as well, like electric cars. You don't want everything to be stored in massive uh, power plants. Um, there has been some news recently about how Reliance and other companies are coming up with very large scale um, plants which have uh, battery storage at a big scale. The advantage of this is when you have economies of scale, you can bring down the prices. And when you start supplying to potential users, then that increases your demand and in fact drives further economies of scale. So you get into this virtuous cycle where, um, where these kinds of technologies can be brought down in cost, as we have seen in the past, even with things like solar panels. Yeah. But, uh, but storage is definitely something that everyone is, is thinking about. Right now, the concern is that as we get to 80% or more of renewable energy in the grid, the cost of grid integration can increase exponentially. So that's definitely a risk. And apart from storage and batteries, people are also thinking of solutions like you have a regional grid. So, you know, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh, India, all of us who are in the same region could export and import electricity based on our needs. We could even think of, you know, so there's a bit of a time difference, you know, to the countries in Eastern Asia, so, uh, or countries in Western Asia, for example. So you could somehow balance out the renewable energy supply and demand across different countries in the region. Europe is already doing this between Germany and Norway. Norway acts as a huge battery in some sense for, for Germany's renewable energy needs. So definitely there's a big puzzle here to be cracked, uh, not so much in terms of technological uh, applications as in just making that technology cheaper. But I would say the bigger problem, one that doesn't lend itself well to technological innovation is the problem of land. Where is all this renewable energy going to be actually installed? 
if you're going to have large scale solar plants or wind, uh, wind farms, where are they going to be actually installed? Given that our land is very precious, we need it for farming, we need it for water conservation, we need it, of course, for our cities. Um, so that's actually a more um, complex, complex problem, one of one where policies and governance and community involvement become very important. Um, I mentioned also in my, you know, in the early part of this podcast that we need more hydrogen, and that hydrogen yeah. needs to be produced through cleaner sources. So again, massive increase in demand for renewable energy that has to be generated from, uh, from the land. Um, I would argue that we need to give more boost to rooftop solar photovoltaic. It's not going to solve the problem, but certainly there is an untapped potential there, which if we increase or accelerate our support for rooftop solar PV, it will take off some of the pressure of the land. Otherwise, we are uh, definitely looking at uh, things like mixed uses, agroforestry, for example, where you can sequester carbon, but also do farming. Similarly, we can think of some uses where you have solar parks, but you can also do grazing. Uh, so, so somewhere we have to become very intelligent and, and inclusive about the use of land so that, uh, so that this low carbon transition is also a fair and equitable transition. No, I absolutely agree. And I, I really uh, like one point that we really need to focus on rooftop solar as well, because uh, coming to the second point that you had mentioned about uh, making cities more efficient, one of the biggest advantage we see of rooftop solar is that it reduces the building temperature, uh, which in general is a bigger benefit in itself because you're using less electricity. You will see hopefully a lower urban heat island effect, which again, is better for the city. Uh, so let's, uh, I, I think we'll again come back to this topic in a wholesome manner uh, with other topics. So with cities, one of the two major things I see as energy uh, is, one is transport sector, which is energy intensive, and another is building sector. Now, when we talk about building sector, we are talking about steel and concrete predominantly. While we are taking up a lot of green building ideas, which help in reducing the day-to-day -day usage of electricity, waste, and water. How can we make sure that the embodied energy in this whole sector can also be reduced and the manufacturing, the recycling can be made much more accessible? You're absolutely right, uh, Puneet. Uh, a lot of the early focus has been on energy efficiency improvements in the building sector. So for example, using more energy efficient appliances like LED lights, uh, conserving electricity. But really the big hidden uh, sort of, uh, you know, part of the problem is material efficiency. And the fact that every uh, every ton of cement or steel or glass that is produced for our buildings leads to a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, not only in the fuel use or the energy used, but in the industrial process itself. So just the very chemical process that is involved in manufacturing of cement or steel uh, has this uh, emissions associated with it. And we don't have many good technologies right now, which are cleaner substitutes. There are some R&D stage kind of um, you know, solutions in countries like Sweden uh, for the steel sector, 
but really there isn't too much right now. So I would say that the next 10 years must be one of innovation, of technological partnerships between the Western countries and developing countries like India, because we do need to come up with these solutions at scale for these industries, which don't really exist right now. So on the energy efficiency side, on the fuel switching side, we can do a lot, but on the material efficiency, as far as processes are concerned, there is still a lot of ground to be covered. The problem that in India, uh, I mean, which is a slightly unique problem for India is the predominance of the informal sector in our industry. So every large company, which may be able to access these new technologies also has an entire supply chain of micro, small and medium enterprises who find it much harder to upgrade to cleaner technologies. So they may lack the finance or they may just not have the people in order to consider these improvements. Uh, it's really a, you know, more, more, they're more in survival mode rather than in, um, rather than in looking at these technological upgrades. So the leading companies have to play the role of um, handholding the MSMEs in their supply chains. There is a huge amount of untapped potential there, even on the energy efficiency side, that they can help these companies to, uh, to adapt to. Um, and the important thing for these, the important motivation for these companies, these smaller, smaller enterprises, is that it will help them tap new markets because countries in Europe and North America are already looking for cleaner products. So it's something that will actually help these companies thrive and, and become more resilient. Um, on the transport side, again, there is a much, much less talked about hidden uh, problem, which is the issue of freight. So you spoke about cities, but we have so much goods uh, traffic traveling between cities. And over the decades, we have switched from using the railways to using road trucks. And that's the component that is really projected to increase enormously in the business as usual scenario. And just yesterday, there was some news about an electric vehicle long distance truck that can, you know, that has the uh, range of 200 kilometers, even fully loaded. So we need more and more innovations like this, which are suited to our road conditions, to our temperature conditions, as far as batteries are concerned. And in all of this, whether it is the building and construction sector or whether it is the freight sector, we have to remember how many people depend on these uh, for their jobs. So the construction sector is a huge employer in India. Truck drivers are a huge number and we need to upskill some of these people in order to be able to, uh, to adapt to the new processes, the new materials uh, that they will be working with. So, um, so, so I would say that the, both the issues that you spoke about, transport and buildings, there is an easy doable part for which we have technologies in hand, but we need the right policies to incentivize shifts. But definitely over the next 10 years or so, there will be a hard technological part that will have to be cracked. And, and the sooner we kind of start thinking like that, the sooner we channel the energies of the private sector to, you know, to see the opportunities that are there, the faster we can progress along this, this pathway. One more point I'd like to yeah. add maybe on sure, the sure. city side, which is that, you know, I spoke about technologies and I spoke about policies to incentivize, but there is a third hidden issue again of governance which is that often we have all the pieces in place, but they don't work well together. So we need some kind of systems that integrate 
people, uh, officials working in different departments and help them to work together. So you mentioned, for example, the urban heat island effect, right? But if we are, uh, if we are not uh, requiring our building codes to take this into consideration, or if we are not um, uh, recognizing that we should not build on flood claims, then the kinds of extreme weather events that are hitting us will only worsen in impacts. So we need ecological zoning considerations to come into urban planning uh, processes. And that's where perhaps you know, we need a little, uh, we need these um, relevant agencies to become more nimble and to be able to work with each other um, and to use cross-cutting expertise. So this is not a matter of technology. It's not a matter of policy incentives. It's a matter of improving the governance systems to become more nimble and more responsive to climate change considerations. Yeah, I, I, I do agree that there are two very important parts about how technology and behavior change would also be required over here to facilitate the whole process. And while you're talking about freight, I, uh, the whole uh, logistic supply, I feel has increased so much with the upcoming of apps as well, uh, which helps you get anything anywhere from anywhere in the world as well, not just in your city, Absolutely. which is just putting more pressure on our own resources of every kind. Now, while that happens, and you have touched upon hydrogen a bit, and I would like to come to that now as well, because uh, I feel while we are talking about different kinds of fuels, hydrogen can have that kind of impact, which can at least try to take off some of the load from existing fossil fuels. I'm not sure how much. Uh, again, I was reading up and uh, I'm not sure if this value is correct or not, but currently in natural gas, you can mix up to 20% of hydrogen or something. Not sure if this is a right figure or not, but uh, that is still a good amount of emissions that you're reducing. So how, what is the major complexity that we are looking at when we are talking about hydrogen as a fuel in all these ecosystem ways? Right. So the thing with hydrogen is that um, it's, if you look at any kind of um, modeling that tries to predict these low carbon pathways for India, Hydrogen is definitely there at the heart of it. Um, the, um, uh, so there are, two, sorry, there are two things here. One is, as I mentioned earlier, we don't yet have the technology at scale. Uh, so we need to think about the next decade or the next few years as a preparatory phase, as the phase, as the period of innovation. So that from 2030 onwards to 2050, for example, we are actually using hydrogen as a substitute in our industrial processes, in our transport and so on. Um, so right now, this is a bit of a big bet, I would say, that, uh, that if we play our cards right now, if we uh, put in place the processes for innovation uh, and preparation, then we will reach a stage where we will be, uh, where it will be possible to switch to hydrogen and actually make a dent in this problem of decarbonization. What are the challenges? One of the challenges is, is that just the nature of hydrogen is such that you need to, currently at least, you need to generate it in a place which is relatively close to where it is going to be produced. Mm. Otherwise, it's going to be just too expensive to transport it. So it's mm. not something that will right now uh, be cost effective compared to the other uh, options that are currently available. So we need to think of options where, um, where the generation can happen close to the point of use. 
Um, the second aspect is one of quality. So some experts say that the hydrogen has to be very pure of a standard that is really pure, especially when it needs to be used in mobile applications. So there again, we need to put in place the kind of supply chains that don't currently exist right now. I mean, the closest that we have is the natural gas supply chains that you mentioned. And these need to be in some sense adapted for, uh, for the use of hydrogen. But there are definitely other kinds of applications in industry where people are looking at it almost in every sector, um, you know, ammonia, for example, uh, where we can start building our, um, our ability to use this fuel. But, the, but as far as the actual decarbonizing effect will come, that will come when we start producing hydrogen from electrolysis rather than from the use of natural gas and other fuels as we are currently doing. And that electrolysis R&D, uh, electrolysis uh, generation of hydrogen is still in the R&D stage. So, so I would say we need to concentrate more, much more on the innovation aspect right now and really start preparing for this future economy. Um, so I'll, I, think, I think that's the challenge really right now that we are preparing for something that has a huge amount of potential and is, Without it, we will not be able to do this net zero kind of um, target that we are talking about. But it's still something that is not currently within our hands. No, I, I absolutely agree with the, the requirement of an alternative fuel here and how that will also help in leading us to uh, somewhere on the net zero or low carbon pathways. But so while I'm thinking of it from the macro scale, uh, one of the biggest challenge I also feel over here is that uh, the biggest set of revenue that any government gets, especially the, uh, like India, comes from the taxes of fossil fuels. And that might also be one of the big challenges going forward that how do we shift from this side to the other side? And what all things can actually come out of it and how can we make sure that we can transition to lower carbon economy as well as make sure that uh, the government is able to sustain its funding so that it can help in development of the country in better ways. This is what makes the whole issue of climate change so exciting. It's never a simple problem, never a simple solution where you plug in some technology and the problem is solved. It has such massive ramifications throughout the economy. Uh, I mentioned the issue of jobs earlier, and you brought up the other issue, which is that of government revenue. So certainly our uh, models show that if you have uh, this shift towards cleaner fuels, then the government, which relies on, I think, almost 25% of its revenue currently from fossil fuels, the uh, coffers of the government will, will take a hit. So the um, alternative that we are proposing, and one which is actually a double, it, it has a double benefit. One is that it will substitute the revenue loss that this fossil fuel tax revenue will go down. And the second is that it will actually incentivize a switch towards cleaner. So it will have a kind of reinforcing effect. What is this miracle policy? It's, it's something called a carbon tax. Actually, it's not very different from the fossil fuel taxes that we currently have in place. So we even have a coal cess that was introduced a few years ago um, and was slightly modified subsequently. But the idea is that when you use fossil fuels, you pay an additional levy or cess or tax on it because you're recognizing that in addition to whatever the price of that thing is, the fossil fuel is, you're also creating some external costs for society, whether it is in the form of air pollution or whether it is in the form of climate change. So you add a kind of penalty to the use of fossil fuels. 
it just so happens that this penalty then becomes takes the form of a revenue for the government. So the difference between a carbon tax and, and any other tax on coal or oil or gas or diesel is that it is imposed not only for the use of these fuels, but also on the process emissions that I spoke about earlier. So if industry is releasing greenhouse gas emissions in the manufacture of cement or steel, that also becomes um, subject to a carbon tax. Um, every time we take any particular, uh, you know, diesel vehicles, um, you know, there will be an additional kind of a carbon tax imposed. Now, the idea of a carbon tax also is that you slowly phase it in, as in fact countries in Europe have done over the period of several decades. So you don't just impose it overnight and cause havoc in the economy. You start with a small uh, carbon tax equivalent to the fossil fuel taxes that currently exist in the economy. And slowly over the period of time, over 10, 20, 30 years, you ramp it up. What this does is it provides a steady signal to all the players in the economy, whether it's industry, whether it's transport operators, whether it is normal households, state governments, anybody making investments, that, that the use of fossil fuels is going to come with a penalty, with a premium. And that's something that you not need to start taking into account in your balance sheets. So every time you have a decision to be made between a cleaner fuel and a dirtier fuel, you're in some sense going to be pushed or nudged towards the cleaner fuel rather than the dirtier fuel. And so this carbon tax, um, when it comes into effect, will uh, replace some of that lost revenue from fossil fuel taxes. So it will put money back in the hands of government to invest in health or education or you know wages or pensions of people and it will also incentivize people to make cleaner rather than dirtier decisions so that's really something that we need to start thinking about many companies in india already have an internal carbon price voluntarily taken on which acts as a kind of carbon tax so every time they make a decision uh, that carbon tax uh, that they have voluntarily taken on guides them towards making decisions that take climate change into consideration. This is something that we could think about even at a national scale. I, I absolutely agree. We had uh, Mr. Anirban Ghosh from Mahindra who had mentioned this on our podcast that how they put a price while taking any decision to be able to go towards a better future eventually that each right. uh, decision is driven by the fact that, okay, how much money uh, are we going to spend on the uh, nature-based solution or whatever it is. Uh, right. But I, I absolutely agree on those lines uh, over here. And I want to come back to the topic of technology and governance, or I would like to say technology and behavior, because as we move forward and as we integrate somewhere more technology, uh, I also feel over here, the one of the big challenge will be the how difficult it is to procure these days the chipsets and the raw materials for the chips. And how are they going? Because these are rare earth metals that we are talking about. Will we have some kind of, uh, you know, transition on those lines as well? Not even, not even sure if I can say carbon neutral or low carbon ways that we can go towards that uh, shift? The problem with our growth model so far, you know, is that it is, it is essentially something that depends on more things being produced and more things being consumed. Um, so every time we buy a new cell phone or a new laptop, uh, we boost the GDP of the country. We spend, 
and, and we also use Modi sources. So every time a new device is manufactured and purchased, it has, as you said, these you know, precious minerals, you know, all kinds of other uh, materials that go into it, and the energy and the embodied carbon that goes into its manufacturing. So clearly what we need is, um, is some kind of understanding that consumption needs to become more sustainable. And this is particularly true of the countries in the West, as well as those of us here in India who are among the richer, the better off people, right? The majority of our country are not people like us who can afford to you know, have this kind of conversation with headphones and laptops and the latest of technology. So certainly sustainable consumption is it's very important. Our, can we can we uh, reduce our consumption to what we need rather than what we think we should have? But the other part of it definitely is one of recycling, the circular economy that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So in all of these um, manufacturing processes, and as we rely more and more on battery storage, on you know these kinds of electronics that go um, you know into our renewable energy or electric mobility, certainly we need to take this much more seriously than has been done because the scale of the of the uh, materials that are going to go into these uh, devices and uh, applications is just going to spiral like anything. So now is the right time to put in place a circular economy, which, uh, which, which sees this almost like a, you know, as a security issue, that instead of trying to import things, instead of being vulnerable to whether it is price fluctuations or even weather events. I mean, there was this very um, interesting example when there were floods in Bangkok a few years ago, I think it was 2011. Yeah. The GDP of Japan went down by 4% in that quarter because yeah. that particular location in Thailand was providing all the hard drives for all the laptop makers, Sony and you know whoever else that yeah. were located there. So, so it is almost like in our own self-interest to, um, to build a recycling-based economy, um, which, um, which makes sure that we don't over-extract. Uh, I mean, after all, now we are talking about deep-sea mining. We are talking about even mining on the moon. So yeah. technologically, perhaps everything is possible. But just because it is possible doesn't mean it is the wise thing to do. Um, uh, and, and so we need to definitely combine this behavioral change that you spoke about with, yes. the, um, with the use of human ingenuity for recycling and, and circular economy and making the most uh, out, of, out of the materials that we have rather than uh, increasing the use of materials. Um, yeah. True, true, true. I feel one of the important questions that needs to be addressed here is how are we going to look at transition of jobs over here? Because everything that we have talked about leads to a new sector being developed completely while taking off the old sector. And there is a huge, as you had already mentioned about, a huge population works in construction industry, automobile industry, uh, fuel industry, and a lot many more industries which will transform over years. So how is this uh, the jargon of just transition? Uh, function out over here? I think in all the things that we've spoken about, you know, we talked about hydrogen, you know, new technologies that don't currently exist at scale. We talked about transforming the way we live in cities or travel from one place to another. Um, I think it's quite evident that the scale of the transition is going to be a massive one and a very far-reaching one. So, um, for example, if you have more 
electric vehicles coming in, uh, Europe has just decided that it's not going to sell any more internal combustion engines after 2035, uh, internal combustion engine vehicles after 2035. It's only going to sell new EVs. So if you have more of these um, EV vehicles coming up, then this will affect all the MSMEs that produce the ancillary parts, the auto parts for these vehicles. Uh, maybe fewer components will be required. Maybe uh, the components that will be required will require a much greater training with the use of electricity or batteries. So, in, uh, so there are deep linkages throughout the economy, to every part of the economy on the industry side, which is going to affect uh, the jobs uh, that, that, will, uh, that will be created as a result of this energy transition. The concept of just transition has actually uh, come from the uh, concerns around closing of coal mines and what happens to the coal mine workers or the thermal power plant workers that, uh, that depended on this, on this fossil fuel based industry. But yeah. if you look at the transition, it is going to affect people's livelihoods in almost every walk of life. So, uh, so definitely there is a need for upskilling um, there is a need to be conscious that in that where the new jobs come up may not be the regions, the states in India where the old old jobs, the polluting jobs will go down. Um, there is a need to recognize that women's employment in the workforce, uh, women's participation, has to be specially protected. This uh, COVID pandemic has shown how women's workforce participation rate was really hard hit. So uh, even if you have new training programs, upskilling programs, doesn't necessarily mean that women will be able to access them or to be able to access the new jobs in the new industries. Yeah. So I would, I would say that there is a need to kind of uh, think about this from a very macroeconomic perspective. Um, you remember I had spoken to you earlier about carbon tax and how it will put, yeah. hands, uh, put revenue in the hands of government. What we also need with carbon tax is a recycling of the revenue back into the hands of the people, poor people who need it the most. And when that happens, uh, then uh, it will also create more jobs, not just the direct jobs like in the EV sector or the indirect jobs like in the electricity or auto parts sector, but also it will induce more jobs in every sector of the economy, whether it is retail, whether it is tourism, whether it is food processing. So what happens is that these new investments that we are talking about, like hydrogen, and these new policies like carbon tax, put the economy on a path of greater growth and more jobs being induced. So overall, the story is a good one. It's, it's a future to look forward to. But the details of who is able to access these new jobs is something that we need to start preparing for right away. So uh, skilling is certainly a very important part of it. But uh, but you know, once you skill people, there should also be jobs waiting for them with to access yeah. with their new skills. So the timing of the transition is an important one. In sectors like renewable energy and electric vehicles, we are seeing the transition happen already. As we speak, we are seeing these transitions happen. But there will be other transitions happening in the steel sector, in the cement sector, in the buildings and construction sector. Maybe they will start a little later, but, but there is also uh, you know, the need for the stakeholders in these sectors to start preparing for upskilling and, and, uh, and strengthening the workforce. Um, finally, however, 
we will have to be prepared for the fact that there will be gaps. There will be people who, will, who may not be able to access these new jobs or the skills. And what we need is safety nets. Um, in India right now, MNREGA is the only really large scale formal safety net that we have in the country. But we need other kinds of safety nets as well, as well as more dialogue with trade unions, workers unions, MSME associations, uh, and other such representatives so that we can make sure that no one is left behind. I, I agree with you over here again uh, that uh, I do feel that yes, uh, while there is one sort of safety net already in place, but with how transition is going to come in uh, sooner or later, we would require more of such safety nets to be able to transition will also help people in a better way that they can shift from one job to another, upskill themselves in the between somewhere and hopefully be able to contribute to their family and society again. So coming to the last question that we generally ask is, what kind of different skill sets will people require or the youths of today require to be able to work on different kinds of policy development over here, because we are looking at a macro picture, specifically on this podcast, or policy development, or on the lines of economic models that would have to be developed for growth of the country over here? Thanks. That's a really good question. Um, I think the import, <laughs> it's very hard to predict the future, right? When you're talking about 30 yeah. years ago, uh, <laughs> we didn't have many of these industries and these things that we have talked about today. Our cities look very different. So it's easy for me, you know, people like me to make predictions it doesn't mean they'll necessarily come true. But I would say it's a very exciting time to be working in this field. And it's only going to get better in terms of the opportunities. So I would say that in almost every field, there is an opportunity to deepen the sustainability aspects of, of whatever that field has traditionally dealt with. Um, I'll give an example from finance. Uh, there's always been a, a sort of booming field around, uh, around financing urban projects, financing energy projects. But more and more people are looking at the sustainability aspects, um, renewable energy, for example, in particular, or, the, or the climate considerations in urban finance. So certainly the kind of skill sets that people are looking at is how do you bring in these sustainability and climate considerations into the, uh, into the normal decision making of finance, because uh, that is something which is now paying off better returns than the traditional uh, uh, traditional types of uh, finance instruments that didn't have these considerations. The second aspect I would talk about is architectural urban planning. Uh, traditionally, we have always had uh, ways of uh, of making sure that architecture or urban planning speaks to the local ecology or the local climate is responsive to it. Uh, the local materials, uh, in some sense, that had. Uh, died down a little bit, but is now coming back in a very big way. Uh, even if uh, regulations are slow to mandate such things, people, consumers are now demanding more and more of, of these kinds of considerations because it will actually be cost effective. It will save them energy costs. So, uh, so I think in every field, there is an opportunity to, uh, to deepen or to specialize in the sustainability aspects. There are also nowadays a lot of professional uh, courses in electric mobility, 
in even the hydrogen economy that many engineering colleges and business uh, schools are beginning to offer and and even the national skill development council runs a very large number of training programs through various skill sector councils um, uh, to uh, you know for these green jobs so it's not just the white collar kind of professionals that i spoke about but even things like uh, those who will uh, construct rooftop solar uh, plants or those who will do the repair and maintenance of air conditioning units in order to make sure that they operate at the right level of efficiency or it could be even at the village level for things like water budgeting so that you make sure that you conserve the rainfall that falls in the village and make sure that it recharges groundwater and that you don't overuse it by using the wrong kinds of by planting the wrong kinds of crops so i would say at the city scale at the village scale there are uh, many different types of uh, training opportunities that are already there but need to be scaled up and particularly made more accessible to women um one last uh, opportunity that i'll speak about in the job sector is really we've been talking a lot about energy and transport but land based uh, livelihoods are going to be extremely important uh, there is a great opportunity for linking farmers and those who have food processing based or non timber forest product based enterprises in rural areas linking them to markets in urban areas uh, helping them access finance so here again there is an opportunity for people to be the intermediaries and to make sure that we support these kinds of nature based livelihoods so that all of this together becomes a way of india moving to a more low carbon and a more sustainable pathway this surely was uh, quite a comprehensive answer and thank you so much for that if you have uh, if i have missed out any questions that you uh, feel can be important to cover up the whole conversation uh, please feel free to go ahead uh, just to say that that so much else is changing in our world right we spoke about new jobs from a low carbon perspective but there will be much more uh, impacts from just greater moves towards automation or greater moves towards capital intensity or technological intensity so whether we like it or not whether we um, get onto this low carbon pathway or not there are going to be job losses and job gains in various sectors of the economy um, the united states for example is already talking about driverless trucks uh in india uh, our labor uh, our workforce our people are really our biggest strength but but we will need to protect them from from these various uh, other forces of change globalization or automation uh i would say that the low carbon pathway uh, in fact opens up new avenues for innovation that if we get onto this at an early stage we'll be able to um, to exploit to tap a new opportunity tap new markets and actually become a major player even in the trade landscape of the future thanks thank you so much ulka uh, this was absolutely wonderful talking to you and understand uh, this on a completely new scale thank you so much Thank just, you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for asking tough questions, to which there are no easy answers. But I think as long as we, you know, things like the CQ podcast are facilitating this kind of conversation and dialogue, I think together we can make wise decisions and put in place the right kinds of policies. So thank you very much.
I, I absolutely agree with you that that I think everyone will have to ask tough questions and everyone will have to work on it together to be able to develop some sort of synergy on uh, future pathways. Thank you. You have been listening to Understanding the Future podcast. To know more about Climate Center for Cities, check out our website www.niua.org slash c hyphen q The show is conceptualized, produced and edited by Punit Gandhi, Senior Associate at CQ. You can now subscribe to our podcast on your favorite channel, which can be accessed through the credits. Also, don't forget to follow us on our social media for more updates. Do share your reviews with us and help us spread the podcast to your friends and colleagues. Do write to us if you would be interested in learning about any specific topics. Thank you and stay tuned for our next episode.